You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us as always, your friend and mine from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, you are just recently returned from Winnipeg. Uh, what's up with that? You know, I too wondered what's up with Winnipeg, and I was curious to, to see what it was like. I'm going to tell you... Go Blue Bombers, by the way. Yeah, I had to ask around to find out what the Blue Bombers were. Uh... I know now why you don't hear a lot of people talking about Winnipeg. I'm from, not, not going to say it was bad. It's just that you go to Winnipeg and then afterwards you're like, I understand now why people talk about like Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver and nobody's ever like, man, you know where we went for his bachelor party? Winnipeg! It was awesome! Uh, from what I could pick up from context from your uh, tweets and stuff while you were there, it kind of seemed to me like Winnipeg was maybe like every other town in Montana except for Missoula. Just like a town that where you, if you go there, you should just expect to see some some real uh, strange and possibly white trash shit. Can I maybe, say that on, maybe. on the air? Can I say that on the air? <laughs> well, on this show, you could say just about anything. But uh, for I guess it's worth noting that if Winnipeg were in Montana, it would by far be the largest city in Montana. Well, there's that, yes. Uh, maybe my experience was hampered by the fact that... Uh, Matt Erickson chose the hotel that we stayed at uh, for this one. He said uh, everything was booked up uh, by the time uh, he got around to it. But we're by far the worst hotel I've ever stayed at on someone else's dime. I mean, I'll stay at some some shitty hotels just being cheap and stuff. But this, my God. Did, did you go down the water slide? We heard about the water slide pre-trip. Let me tell you something, man. I was already a little... As soon as I got in and saw the inside of that hotel, I was like, I don't know if I trust these people to run a water slide. And then when I went in the room and turned on the sink and the water uh, ran for a second or two and then stopped of its own volition... Oh, wow. That, especially since we're talking about a plumbing-related issue, really made me think twice about whether I wanted to go down this water slide. But you know what? I got up on Saturday morning. I figured, fuck it. I didn't come all this way to not go on the water slide. I walked down there. I saw the water slide, which had stagnant water in the slide portion of it. Uh, and then a really weird dude uh, shouted at me that the pool was closed. I couldn't even really tell for sure that he worked there. Uh, and that's when I decided, you know what, let's take a hint. Let's, let's take a hint from fate here and, and head on back upstairs. It sounds like maybe you had some of that uh, socialized plumbing at the, at the hotel. <laughs> that's, that had to be what it was. It almost killed Brock Lesnar that yeah. one time years yeah. ago. Uh, well, Ben, we've got a lot to talk about this week in the wake of UFC 161, but I just thought you would want to know that this week's music for the podcast comes to us from listener Brody Stevenson and his band Gypsy Chief Goliath. i to make sure I get that right because it's kind of a mouthful. That sounds like just made up. Well, that you'll get to hear their music. I can vouch for the fact that they are a real band. And uh, if you like what you hear from them, you can check out more of their stuff at Facebook slash Gypsy Chief Goliath. You know, I want you to realize to what extent our listeners hold us responsible for the music that appears on the podcast. Well, they shouldn't. Because so far, if people send us stuff, we will put it on. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that people don't realize that there's not like a selection process going on. If you send us something that can just qualify as music, we will put your shit on the air. But For the most part. <laughs> but when, when I was in Winnipeg, for one thing, several uh, 
fans at the arena and people around town uh, who saw me, t- first thing they wanted to talk about was the CME. Naturally. I think that, uh, I mean, a part of me was like awesome. Another part of me was like, you realize that's not even my job, right? Uh, you realize I also write things, but they didn't seem to care about that. Um, but I'm, more than one person referenced music that has appeared on the podcast in the, in the past as if they wanted me to, to answer for it, <laughs> uh, which... I mean, I can't even remember what music was on the podcast in the past, and I, I have no say in what happens there. So if you see me out in, in the streets, don't try and talk to me about that shit. Yell at Chad about it. Maybe uh, this is a, maybe this is a good segue that next week maybe we should do the start of the CME music uh, contest that we've been talking about doing. By all means. So we'll, let's uh, you and I'll, I'll we'll we'll flush out some rules yeah, some we'll i guess maybe more like guidelines for this particular contest but we'll do that for next week we'll get that started because i know that the people out there are 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 champing at the bet bit to 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 get that done they are anyway this week's podcast comes to you in three rounds as usual in round number one rashad evans did what he had to do against dan henderson on saturday at ufc 161 and in the process he earned what a one-way ticket to light heavyweight limbo and in round two, in the words of Dana White, Roy Nelson, quote, put his balls on the table and rolled the dice, end quote. Unfortunately, By the way, try those at the Bellagio and you will be kicked out. <laughs> Unfortunately, those balls looked pretty tired and maybe as if those balls had sort of underestimated Stipe Miocic. How dare you talk about Roy Nelson's balls that way? And in round three, everybody's mad at the Maz as once again, MMA's most vilified referee does what he does best. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Taylor Summers. He writes, Vitor Belfort finally realized he had to address the whole TRT thing and claims that, quote, people think TRT is about increased sex drive or performance enhancement. It's not that. It's about life. People talk like it's a cheating process, but it's the opposite. Low testosterone is something that can cause serious health problems and even death, end quote. I'm interested in your response to this, and I realize I'm likely inciting a Ben Folks rant, so I'm just going to go ahead and get the fuck out of the way. Ben? Well, first of all, the opposite of a cheating process, wouldn't that be something that actually hinders your performance? Hmm, interesting question. That maybe something was lost in 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 translation there. He was speaking English. Yeah, but it's still sort of. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I I almost don't even have the energy to go on a, a rant almost. Uh, but you know, I get the the things that people say, the explanations that they offer. That, hey, you know, this is about making me feel better and this is about uh, improving my life and all that stuff. And it may be, they may see it that way, but I don't think that that's good enough. I don't think it's a good enough explanation for why you should be allowed to use steroids. I, I mean, the risks to other people of you doing that are too great. You know, just if you're, if you're sad, uh, if you feel like you're getting old and life... W- you know, has lost some of its flavor. That's what happens when you get old, goddammit. That's what happens. And hey, if, I, if you're a regular citizen, you want to take some TRT and it makes you feel better and you're okay with being on that shit the rest of your life, fine. But if you, if you want to be a pro fighter and you want to put other people potentially at risk if you decide to abuse that TRT, or even if it just gets your levels up to, to somewhere where they couldn't be naturally, I, I just don't see that trade-off as, as being one that we want to make in this sport. 
Yeah, and you know, when you see and hear Vitor Belfort talk about stuff, it, he seems like a guy that, that is easy to like. He seems like a, like he has a good attitude about stuff and, and he's just sort of like full of, of good energy and, and good vibes to, for lack of a better term. And so you wonder at this point if it's a situation where some of these guys, maybe Vitor Belfort included, have kind of tricked themselves into thinking like, hey, you know, this, this isn't really helping my performance, even though, uh, the people that, that we've heard from who train with guys who are on TRT say, Oh yeah, it does in a major way. Helps well, these guys train harder, train longer, train essentially like they did when they were in their twenties. Uh, and it, I mean, it just seems like a thing where if you were an athlete, it would be really seductive and easy to talk yourself into thinking that you weren't doing anything wrong. And how do you draw that line between something that helps your performance and something that doesn't? Like, how could you know totally? I mean, if it's, if it's making you feel better, isn't that helping your performance? Right? Like, I mean, how can you, there's no way for you to just categorically say, like, this does nothing. This thing that I'm going through all this trouble and taking all this shit in order to use, uh, in no way improves my ability to fight people. Like, there's just, you can't say that. There's no way to know that. Yeah. For me, it all, it, it at this point always comes back to the idea that these guys on TRT, are essentially just asking us to believe that they're not cheating when there's no real transparent oversight going on. You know, you have to show up and take the, uh, the commission test, depending on where you're fighting, obviously. Uh, but you know, we've been led to believe over time that those tests are really easy to dodge, especially in the case of, of a fast acting testosterone. And, you know, the UFC, especially in the case of Belfort says that they've been testing the quote unquote shit out of him. But again, there's no real transparency there. We don't know the honest truth about when they're testing him, yeah. how they're testing him. It's just people telling us, don't worry, he's being tested and it's, and it's worked out fine. Also it's just, to me, they're asking us to make a tremendous leap of faith that yeah. these guys who 50% of the money that they make, at least in an <laughs> advertised way, depends on, on whether or not they win or lose. They're asking us to take a tremendous leap to believe that those guys aren't, gaining some kind of advantage just because just because of the sheer morality of it all you know what i mean well and also dana white said after the press conference at ufc 161 that he thought uh belfort was being unfairly beat up about the trt thing and it was like wait a minute weren't wasn't belfort one of the guys who when he showed up looking ripped dana white then turned around and was like hey you know, if you show up looking like you're on steroids, then I don't believe. Then I think that you're using TRT to cheat. It seemed like I mean, he didn't explicitly say back then that Vitor was one of the reasons why he had changed his mind on TRT, but it seemed like they were connected, especially because you see Vitor now and he does look ripped. And he said too, uh, and this is I think the reason why it seems different with him or more egregious with him. Like he said to to John Morgan when he offered that explanation, it's hard to describe the reason I need TRT. I mean, why does your body generate cancer? You eat properly, you do everything right, and you still generate cancer. But he hasn't like he has. We know that he's done steroids. He's tested positive for steroids before. Uh, it seems likely that he used steroids more than just that one time he got caught, because that's usually how that stuff goes. But we know that he did steroids at at least some point in his past, and we also know that using steroids can damage your endocrine system. So in, in order to be like, hey, who knows? This could be from anything. Yeah, or it could be from the one thing we know you did that we also know can be can be correlated with low testosterone. Uh, that, to me, creates enough doubt that there should be a, at least, at the very least, a much, much higher burden of, of proof on him to show like why he has low testosterone, where it came from, and why he needs this. Right. And I think you made a, a, the point a few minutes ago, but it's a good one that 
if you're a normal person, if you're my 62 year old dad, for instance, it would be totally fine if you, if you wanted to take testosterone to, to, I don't, it's my dad, so I don't want to think about it, but like, whatever. To, to get you his know. doggy style back? Yes, exactly. Said? To get his doggy style back. There's, uh, that, there's that mental image for you right there. <laughs> but uh, these guys are professional athletes, and it's not like being a professional athlete is a right. It's it's a complete privilege, and if it turns out that, that you've gotten older, and for one reason or another, your body doesn't produce the same amount of testosterone that it used to produce when you were younger, I'm inclined to say tough shit. In, in a in a professional athlete kind of a way. I don't I don't think you should be able to just get jacked up on on synthetic testosterone because you got old. That doesn't seem like a good enough excuse to me. Well, and one of the things that athletic commissions do if you come to them and you say I have this condition, therefore I want to take this. One of the first questions that they ask is is there a substitute? Is there something else you could take that would not be on the banned list that would uh, perform the the same function for you, and so it's like like that's what stops it from you being able to say like, well yeah, uh, I have a fear of cages that might prevent me from competing in the UFC, um, but if I'm allowed to do LSD, my fear of cages disappears, uh, and they'd be like, yeah, well maybe you could take an anti anxiety medication or something instead. Uh, I mean, and that's I mean that's the argument they make against pot users, like Matt Riddle is saying, hey, if I don't smoke tons of weed every day, then I have to take this ADD medication and this other medication to counteract that and then something else to counteract that. I can take four things that make me feel weird or I can just smoke a bunch of weed. And that's where the athletic commissions are like, yeah, can't smoke a bunch of weed, take those other four things. Uh, Yet with testosterone, it's something that we know has the power, whether you believe these guys are using it for that or not, but has the power to make you stronger and faster and recover quicker. uh, We're not applying that, that same standard and it just seems insane. Well, I hope nobody is playing the co-main event podcast unofficial drinking game oh, ever again this week, for a matter of fact, because they will be passed out already at this point. Uh, the second question this week comes to us from Dano. He writes, what's up with these fighters claiming they need a doctor's note before they can cut weight? First, it was Cyborg claiming that her doctors told her a cut to 135 pounds would keep her from ever having children, even though she wasn't too concerned about that when she was pumping stanozolol into her body. And now Bigfoot Silva says he's going to ask a doctor if he can safely drop 70 plus pounds, as if that were actually a legitimate question. (laughs) Any doctor with any sense is going to tell him that no amount of weight cutting is safe. While he's there, maybe Bigfoot could ask the doctor if it's safe to let gigantic men slam their ham-sized fists into his skull until he loses consciousness. I'm going to go ahead and guess the answer to both those questions would be no. Is there a point to this charade, or is it just the MMA equivalent of standing behind someone and yelling, hold me back, bro? It's totally a hold me back, bro. Also, how much would you love to be a fly on the wall for a conversation between Bigfoot Silva and that doctor? That can't be real, right? Is he really going to do that? He's going to go to an actual medical professional and be like... I realize I'm this enormous guy who's afflicted with this disease that makes me enormous. But like, what do you think about me fighting at 205? Like, <laughs> uh, maybe he's just going to use like a, the, the forums on WebMD uh, for that one. Yeah, maybe. You know, and hey, as long as it doesn't rob him of his natural speed and endurance, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, no, but that is totally, I mean, it's a good point that if you were to go to any doctor and be like, Hey, I walk around at about 200 pounds and I want to fight at 170, uh, which is the thing these dudes do. And we're like, and you were asking their medical opinion uh, about whether or not that would be healthy. They would probably tell you, yeah, don't do that. Also, don't let anyone kick you in the head if you can avoid it at all. So, yeah, it's totally a hold me back, bro. And, it, and I think a pretty obvious one. No one is really buying it that 
you're going to be like, I would kick your ass if my doctor said it was okay. No one's going for that. Third question this week comes to us from Corey Wichard. He writes, after inviting several non-MMA fans out to watch UFC 161, the event represents another failed attempt to recruit new fight fans. I appreciate the technical side of the sport and do not necessarily watch MMA just for the knockouts, but I have to say that this card basically sucked. I suppose I should have picked a better card to invite people to, but I feel like MMA is generally too unpredictable to somehow plan to dazzle my friends by handpicking which cards to invite them to. I like the sport enough to watch it alone, but it's more enjoyable to have people shouting at the TV along with me. What advice do you guys have for converting friends into fight fans? Is it better to just constantly invite people out and hope for the best or to wait for a particularly promising card to come around? That's an interesting question, and that's something I've actually thought about before because, you know, I, I think any person who's been a, a hardcore MMA fan for any length of time has had that experience where you invite some people over or you try and, like, tell people, like, this is going to be awesome. You're going to want to see this one. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes they deliver and sometimes they don't, and then at the end of it, your friends are like, so this is this is what you do? This is what you've been doing on Saturday nights all the time? Like, this is this is why you complained when I told you the date of my wedding? <laughs> like you know, I I think that's a an experience that many of us have had. Uh, I mean, I've kind of solved it by just being like, look, the people who are already into it are gonna be into it. Uh, the people who want to come over and watch it, like it's their idea, they're genuinely curious. Okay, the other people, I don't even worry about it anymore, man. Yeah, and it's not like you can really force it on people. I mean, I feel like people. I know I tried. People who are going to be into MMA. I don't feel like the people who are going to be into MMA are going to watch a boring UFC card and be like, oh, man, this sucks. I'm out of here. I'm never going to watch it again. But then see an exciting fight and be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I love it. I want to come over and watch these every single time. I feel like you're either going to like it or you're not. You know, And if, you, and if you're a guy who's not going to like it, it's probably not going to matter if it's the most exciting, greatest card on earth. In fact, it could be just the opposite. If you invite friends over and it turns out to be some kind of Bigfoot Silva Cain Velasquez blood bloodbath fest then that could turn as many, just as many people off. It's the kind of thing I feel like you can't you can't worry about anymore. I guess I'm past it. Maybe Corey needs to get some new friends. I don't Yeah. I'm not well, You know, it, it reminded me though that the last time I think I tried to do this was uh UFC ninety seven, uh where I think my wife had planned some kind of like barbecue thing, but there was a UFC that night and I was like, Well hey, you know, maybe people are still over, they can come down and watch the pay per view. And so a couple uh a couple grad school types uh, were over here then, and I think maybe I had made the mistake of pumping up Anderson Silva a little too much. I mean, like, well, this is actually, you know, you're getting a chance to witness, like, probably the greatest fighter in the world. Uh, it's kind of cool. And they were like, okay. Uh, and then that's the one where he fought Tullus Latis. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, that would have been bad. Yeah. And it was I was kind of trying to explain to him, it's usually not like this, I swear. You know, this never happens to me. Like that kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, it didn't go well. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or a concern you want to air to the podcast, uh, you can get in touch with us by going to the website, comainevent.com, and clicking the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and segue straight into round number one. Well, 
Well, this was not one for the ages, as nine of the 11 fights on the UFC 161 card went the distance, including Rashad Evans' main event win over Dan Henderson. Now, in no way was this a bad performance from Rashad Evans, who I thought pretty clearly won the fight, uh, but it's also not totally apparent where this leaves him in the light heavyweight division. Ben, is that the sense that you got from watching this fight? It was close. It was a split decision. It wasn't like Rashad Evans came out and blew Dan Anderson out of the water. I thought he pretty clearly won, but at the same time, it's not like I felt like this really rekindled his his uh, stock in the light heavyweight division. Yeah, especially when you consider what Rashad Evans' situation is right now. Even if he had blown Dan Henderson out of the water, like he'd have come out and done that, you know, Chuck Liddell knockout thing and, and complete with with post-fight posing and everything. And then, you know, this morning we all woke up to a bunch of hilarious photoshops of Dan laid out. Uh, <laughs> even if he had done that, it still probably would not have been enough to get him you know, a title shot with John Jones again, especially after the way that first one went and we saw it fairly recently. Like he's in that situation where when there's a dominant champ at the top that you've already lost to, you really have to go hard to make that case to get another fight with him. So this definitely didn't do that. And so then you ask yourself, what do you do with Rashad Evans? I mean, I think one of the things that you can do is to keep using him in this sort of capacity, like where you go to a place, especially like a new place, especially a new Canadian place where you're like, well, hey, they're probably going to buy all the tickets anyway if you can put together just a halfway decent card because they're crazy for MMA. They know Rashad Evans. They've heard of the guy. He used to be a champion. Throw him on there and and that'll be enough. I mean, that seems like the kind of role he's stuck in unless he can really, really do something special and soon too. Yeah, but I would say he's not completely alone in being in that kind of odd no. limbo at the light in the light heavyweight division just because John Jones has beat so many of the guys in yeah. the top 10. I mean, I would think that the sort of uh no-brainer fight for Rashad Evans next might be a rematch with Machida just because you know, uh, Machida knocked Evans out and took the title from him like right at the height of the Machida's powers. That was like the crest of the wave. Yeah, that was the beginning of the Machida the, era. The, the, yeah, then I, I believe it ended about 15 minutes after that fight was over. <laughs> uh, but I think you're right. He, he finds himself in a, in a weird situation. I guess my question would be, if you're Rashad Evans, like, and you've talked so much about quote-unquote, getting your swagger back and obviously still having aspirations that you want to accomplish in your career, that doesn't seem like it would be good enough for me if I was that guy to just kind of like hang around and knock off the Dan Hendersons and Leota Machidas of the world and sort of, what, bide my time until John Jones goes up to heavyweight and then see if I could make a run at the title? I mean, uh, the guy's, he's no spring chicken, but he's also only 33 years old. I'm wondering, should he make a run at middleweight if what they're talking about now is is... Uh, I guess the rumors out on the internets this week have have the possibility of Anderson Silva versus Michael Bisping if if Silva is able to get by uh, Chris Weidman in his next fight. I mean, I don't think Rashad Evans has the has the key to defeat Anderson Silva by any stretch of the imagination. But if you're Rashad Evans, doesn't that seem like a, a better opportunity for you if you can make 185 to go down there and see if you can make waves if you can make 185 i i bet he could i, I don't have a hard time believing he could make 185 he's I want not to know what a his big, doctor says he's, <laughs> he should check in with bigfoot silva's doctor just to make sure that it's safe but like you know when you see rashad evans in person he's not a huge dude he's not a, a big 180 or a 205 pounder nobody he also though did not look like he was carrying really any excess weight uh and that's true that's was like true. 205 206 or something at the weigh-in so you know, that's that's not going to be an easy cut for him. And I also think that uh, you want to be careful dropping weight in a situation like that. Because if you do it, 
and it doesn't work out, then you're really stuck. You know, then nobody wants to see you go back up to light heavyweight and do the thing that you decided you didn't want to do in the first place. It does put him in a weird situation. It also, it's hard to gauge exactly what he wants to do after that because he, sh- you know, before the hand, before the fight, like when he was telling me, I got to get my swagger back. Like I used to go out there and want to embarrass people for even signing to fight me. That's what I want to do. And you don't see him really fighting like that. I mean, I don't see really you can complain about his performance against Dan Henderson. He fought smart. Uh, you know, he took enough risks. He kept the pressure up on Dan Henderson. Certainly under the, the Stockton unified rules, he wins that fight because it looked like Dan Henderson is fading a little bit and Rashad is still going strong by the end of the third. Uh, but it didn't look like he had made it his personal mission to go out there and absolutely demolish Dan Henderson. It looked like, you know, he was going to do what he had to do to get the win. And then afterwards he said, yeah, you know, I'd like to get a shot against John Jones again and like to go back to, you know, smashing people, but it's tough. And it's like, once you start to talk that way uh, about it, that's when I get a little worried uh, about you as a fighter. Because, I mean, yeah, it is tough. Yeah, no surprise. It's tough to beat the best 205-pound fighters in the world. That is a difficult thing to do. But when you start feeling that way, like, hey, man, this this stuff is difficult. Like, that's kind of the opposite of the swagger he said he was looking for, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know that I wasn't buying that even from the start. Well, that's uh, true. You made that clear beforehand that you were not buying that. In defense of Rashad Evans, though, like Dan Henderson is exactly the kind of dude that you don't want to go out there and try to make a point against, right? Like that, that's how Dan Henderson makes his money. He, Dan Henderson likes to go out there against guys like Fedor Emelianenko that are just going to, fold up the game plan and toss it in the trash can and make it a coin flip from the word go. Like Dan, if Dan Henderson is going to beat you, he is going to knock you out. That's the one way he's going to beat you. So, you know, if I'm going to say anything in defense of Rashad in this fight, he fought a smart fight. He fought exactly the kind of fight that it would take for him to beat Dan Henderson because he knows if he goes out, goes out there and, and, and fights the way that he ultimately ended up fighting and, and prevents Dan Henderson from landing that H bomb as it's, unfortunately called, uh, then he's probably going to win. So I feel like while not a, a totally scintillating or exciting performance from Rashad Evans, it was the kind of performance that he needed to beat Dan Henderson. I mean, it certainly was better than if he would have gone out there to quote unquote, get his swagger back and did something stupid and got knocked out. Right. I, I feel like you got to at least walk right up to the edge of doing something stupid. If you're going to get your swagger back, but maybe, yeah, man, but I mean, especially if you come into this fight on the heels of two straight losses, like Rashad did, like he, yeah. need, he just needed to win this one, man. That was, that's what needed to happen. He needed to beat Dan Henderson any way that he possibly could. And then from Henderson, we also see, I guess maybe this is the second fight in a row where he's actually looked 42 years old. Uh, he's a guy that obviously, like I said, when he beats you, it's going to be really spectacular and there's going to be funny, uh, photoshops of you on the internet the next day. But it seems like more and more, the more that we see from him, especially now in his UFC renaissance, I guess you would call it, he looks like the kind of guy that if he doesn't beat you, with that H bomb, he's going to kind of recede back into being this sort of one dimensional fighter. You know, that's one of the things I was about to say is that it highlights kind of the difficulty of fighting Dan Henderson right now, because if he beats you, uh, H bomb strikes again. And you know, Dan Henderson, the, the ageless wonder, uh, if he doesn't beat you, you know, if, if you manage to go out there and edge out a decision over him like this, then everybody's just going to say, Hey man, Dan Henderson's 42 fucking years old. And, and, He's starting to look it, you know, especially if you com- if you combine this with how he looked like in the Machida fight where he just really couldn't get anything going. Uh, it, it does start to seem like one of those where when you look back on it after the fact, after you already know how it happens, it's easy for people to minimize it uh, and 
make it seem like not such an impressive accomplishment. And also makes you think, man, wasn't it just recently that we were like, Dan Henderson, biggest threat to John Jones. That's obviously the fight that needs to happen. That's the, the, the title fight that needs to happen. And then you see some of Dan Henderson's recent performances and you think, yeah, maybe it's better for everyone that that fight didn't happen. Yeah, I still think it's a good win for Rashad. I mean, the, the, obviously losing, losing to Machida was brought, took some of the luster off the old Dan Henderson hype train. Um, I, I still think it's a, it's a pretty good win though, uh, for Rashad. And I thought that he handled it fairly, uh, you know, I thought he handled Dan Henderson fairly easily. There was the one moment in the, the second or the first round when, when Henderson stumbled him, when it looked like Rashad kind of walked right into a jab. Uh, but other than that, that, I mean, that was sort of Henderson's only moment that I thought he really looked like he was controlling the fight. The rest of it, uh, I thought sort of, uh, belonged to Rashad. And, and I didn't think that the fight was as close as the score or the scores indicated. Um, which again, I think just sort of reminded me of the point that I feel like the 10 point must system is not necessarily the most, uh, uh, the sharpest tool to, to try to figure out who wins an MMA fight, but again, it's like a three round fight. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially, yeah, you're right. A, a three round fight because, uh, you know, Dan Henderson looked like he was winning the fight for like 10 seconds in the first round. And yet, he, you know, one of the judges gave him the fight on, on, on the scorecards. Yeah. I mean, that is the problem with the, the, the 10 point must system is that it just fails to really differentiate between a round where one guy, Clearly won the entire thing, but without, you know, coming close to finishing the dude and around where it was even and one dude got a takedown in the last 20 seconds. You know, those two are both scored the same when they're clearly not the same thing. Right. And then the reluctance of anybody to give a 10-8 or, God forbid, a 10-10. And I guess maybe on the positive side of things, we do get to dodge the having the conversation about Dan Henderson's TRT use headed into a title fight. You know, that would definitely bring the focus back around to that a little bit. So I'm pleased that we don't have to have that, that conversation. I but know you are. If you're Dan Henderson now, you're 42. And I guess even if you're the UFC trying to promote Dan Henderson, what do you do with the guy? Like he seems to me anyway, like a dude who would be ripe for some super fights, but I don't know exactly who you would put him up against. Maybe, you know, he certainly had success against Fedor in that fight. So I don't know if you could find a, a smallish heavyweight that, that, would earn and that would would make for an interesting fight with Dan Henderson. It just seems like he's kind of also spinning his wheels at 205 if he decides to stay there. Yeah, you need somebody who uh, is going to be the person to to chuck the game plan out the window, or you need somebody who is so Pat Barry. I think we just talked about Pat Barry. <laughs> somebody who is kind of like a Dan Henderson in another regard. Dan Henderson, Roy Nelson. Boom. I thought about that earlier today. It, it would it would certainly be a qualify as a super fight in all regards, especially the fact that they look like they're from two or three weight classes apart. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. It's two guys that are going to go out there and throw hillbilly, hillbilly haymakers and yeah, and that I mean that's the one. Like there's some of those fights where like you throw them on Fox and you could advertise the hell out of them during an NFL game. That's the one you advertise the hell out of during a NASCAR uh, race. And man, you just sit back and, and watch the money roll in. Get the NASCAR dads. Uh, all right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll we'll get out of here. Uh, ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? goes out to the notion that Anthony Pettis could replace TJ Grant against Ben Henderson at UFC 164. Uh, and I like Anthony Pettis. He's an exciting fighter, and he seems like a super nice kid, but... 
you know, nobody, at least that we know of, twisted his arm to get him to go down to 145 for this quote-unquote super fight against against Jose Aldo. And, no, it was and, his idea with the text message, right? That's right. You're right. It was. He sent that text message, phantom text message to Dana White demanding it. Uh, but now, you know, less than a week after we find out that he's hurt uh, and he, he, knocked, he nicked up his knee and he's out of the fight, Pettis told your employer, MMA Junkie, quote, I can be 100% ready to fight Benson Henderson in Milwaukee. With all due respect to TJ Grant, Milwaukee is my town, and the fight with Ben is the fight everyone has wanted for years. Man, come on. Look, TJ Grant earned this fight. He's got a better l- record in the lightweight division than Anthony Pettis does. He's 5-0. and He knocked out Gray Maynard in a fight that we were all told was a title eliminator. Uh, and so if any sort of chicanery results in TJ Grant out and Anthony Pettis in, that's totally going to make me say, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Not to mention, isn't Milwaukee Danny Boy Downs' town? We all know the truth. Come on. We know the truth there. And to a lesser extent, Laverne and Shirley's. I don't know what Anthony Pettis is trying to Just pull there. showing your age on that one. <laughs> My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the aforementioned Roy Nelson, who... We knew this was coming. When, when told, uh, or when responding to uh, Daniel Cormier saying he wanted to beat up Roy Nelson for Dana White, uh, told Ariel Helwani, quote, having a lot of black friends, they would say that would be, that would be more of an Uncle Tom move. Yeah, ouch. Now, first of all, when you, if you're going to start you know, your, your phrase with having a lot of black friends, you probably should just stop right there. Um, and... Also, when uh, Roy Nelson went on to explain it, and he was saying, hey, that's what my friends were saying. And I was just like, wow. (laughs) So what you're telling me is Roy, when he's hanging out with all his black friends uh, and tells them about Daniel Cormier, and they say, oh, man, that's an Uncle Tom move. And he's like, wow, that's kind of offensive. I can't believe they said that. I better repeat this to Ariel Helwani. In public. You fucking kidding me, Roy Nelson? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, we're going to talk lots more about Roy Nelson in round number two, and that starts right now. Chad, Roy Nelson showed up for the last fight on his UFC contract against Stipe Miocic. 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 Now, see, on the broadcast, we decided to go with Miocic this huh, time. Okay. I, before, we've said other things. We've said, uh, I believe, Miocic at one point. Miocic? Miocic was, was one. But for this broadcast, Mike Goldberg and Joe Rogan apparently had agreed upon Miocic. Okay. So, well, for what say, that's worth. He showed up to fight Stipe. Stipe. Miocic. Everyone's favorite guy from Ohio. And for about 20 seconds, looked all right. And then immediately just got tired as shit. And watched as Stipe danced around him and peppered his head with punches. Now, Obviously, not the way you want to end your contract, especially if you were betting that you were just going to be a, a negotiating genius and knock out Stipe, go right into your, your contract negotiations with the UFC with the, the superior negotiating position. 
Instead, the last thing everybody saw of you is looking sick and tired and bending over at the waist while Stipe walks around with his hands up in the air. What now for Roy Nelson? Wither Roy Nelson. Well, it's also not the way you really want to go out after you have, I guess we, we would say, mistakenly said some racist stuff before the fight. <laughs> That's the thing. Maybe you should have clarified in my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? I don't even believe... Roy Nelson really understood the whole Uncle Tom thing. No, it seemed like he totally had no idea that that was a thing that he should absolutely not say in public. Ever, Which, ever, ever, I mean, ever. Was, and that one I don't blame him for. I blame it on uh, his lots of black friends for not explaining it to him. When when he and you know his lots of black friends are hanging out, chilling, they might even say, they really should have, have explained to him that that was going to be a racially charged statement, and they didn't, and that they did a disservice to their friend Roy Nelson. And, you know, it came right on the heels of Josh Thompson this same week uh, saying some stuff on the internet about how gay marriage or something was going to make us eat adult or make adults eat human babies. He said something <laughs> like that. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was... Maybe it was, he was doing a, a Jonathan Swift thing. Yeah, who knows, man? And, and you know, when the, when these kind of things happen twice in a week and then we show up on the UFC broadcast and they don't even mention it as far as Roy Nelson is concerned, which is not a shocker because, once again, you're dealing with a company that owns its own broadcast and you don't have that that sort of vital even one degree of separation between, between say, network television and, like, the NFL – because if, you know, if an NFL football player had said some racist shit the week before the before the the game, like maybe uh, I, I'm trying to think of a, a good parallel to Roy Nelson, maybe like a, a Rob Gronkowski type. Except that I believe that Ron Gronkowski, like, probably actually does have lots of black friends. <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably true. But but like, say Rob Gronkowski says some racist stuff leading up to the game. It's not like they're not going to mention that during the NBC broadcast of, of that week's game. But so like when two of these things happen in one week and then I turn on my UFC 161 broadcast and the UFC guys are talking about how, oh, Roy Nelson's this big fan favorite and everybody wants to see Roy Nelson do well, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sitting at home being like, yeah, but didn't he just say some kind of like mistakenly <laughs> racist stuff this week? Okay, but That he, makes me feel really, really alienated from this entire sport, to okay. be honest with you. I, I get that. But I also feel like th we did in a weird way. Um, I think get reminded of what Roy Nelson's true value is to the UFC uh, because he was a guy they brought in on short notice for this one uh, to kind of boost this, this flagging card. And he did it. He, I mean, he looked terrible. Oh, awful. Um, Just God awful. But you know, when he, cause he showed up, and the arena was instantly recharged after everyone was just about put to sleep by Ryan Jimmo and Igor Pokryak. Nice. Nailed it. Uh-huh. And, I mean, that was one where the most exciting thing that happened uh, was there was a crazy fight in the crowd. Uh, and then nobody listened to Ryan Jimmo's speech where he apologized for the way he had chosen to fight afterwards. Uh, but I mean, it was just, it kind of just sucked all the, the energy out of the place. And then as soon as Roy Nelson steps foot out there, people are fired up. People do like Roy Nelson. I mean, they, they responded again, to something. That makes me feel totally alienated from that, from the sport when the guy who mistakenly said the racist stuff is getting roundly cheered and they're chanting his name in the crowd. Cause, cause for me, it's like, well, I mean, if you say some racist stuff before the fight and then you go out there and totally get your ass handed to you by Stipe Miocic, Stipe. like, 
I don't feel that bad for you. I have yeah, to be honest. but again, I don't even think Roy knew what the hell he was saying. No, and and like, can you picture picture right now Roy Nelson sitting down in an easy chair, uh, reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, <laughs> uh, and being like, "Oh man, well, this is this is some heavy stuff to think about," uh, and and understanding the reference. No, before he clear, says it. clearly no way. not. Clearly not. But I and I mean, I think what you what you say brings up a good point, and maybe it's that even Roy Nelson kind of misunderstands why he's popular. Like, I think Roy Nelson thinks that the, like, wisecracking, uh, you know, rebellious attitude that he has both pre- and post-fight is important to his marketability, whereas I would say it's just because he's fat and it knocks people out. Like, clearly I, the people of Winnipeg, the Winnipeggers, is that what, the, is yeah. that what you actually call them? Uh, could give two shits what he said before the fight. Like they just wanted to see a fat guy knock somebody out. I think I think it's ninety percent that uh, you know that the guy can take a punch and he can knock you out and he will just stand there and get his ass kicked for the entire time and won't quit uh, if that's what it takes. I think there is ten percent of it that responds uh, to his kind of like ham-fisted antagonism of Dana White at times. I think it's the same thing. Like they're kind of, it's kind of a stone cold Steve Austin, Vince McMahon thing where people do respond to the dude who is being a dick to his boss. Uh, like people kind of get into that a little bit. I don't think that accounts for as much of it as Roy thinks it does. I think he thinks he is cleverer, uh, and more of a Chael Sonnen figure than he really is. I mean, I think if anything, uh, Roy Nelson's attempt to be that kind of a character in interviews and stuff uh, proves that, hey, not everybody can do what Joe Sonnen does. It no, looks easy. He actually but, made it. He actually made the degree of difficulty look much higher. Yeah, than you do would've. actually have to be smart to be funny. Um, so he did Joe Sonnen a favor there by reminding everybody that that it does take somebody a little bit special to do that. Uh, but I do think you're right that mainly it's because uh, you know he'll he'll go out there he'll look for that that big bomb and if he doesn't get it then he doesn't mind you know taking a bunch of punches to the face he's not going to run from that um but i mean i think that is still part of his value and i think he showed it even by looking terrible i mean he did what they brought him in to do on that card and i think that that he showed in a way how it's worth resigning him he also showed how his own like poor mismanagement of his career is going to affect him financially dana white said in the in the uh, media scrum after the press conference that uh you know, a couple of years ago, or at least a few fights ago, uh, Roy Nelson had said to Joe Silva, Hey, this is bullshit that I'm still on this ultimate fighter contract. Look at the guys I'm fighting. Uh, I should be on a better contract than that. And that Joe Silva agreed with him and said, Yeah, you're right. We will give you a new contract before you finish this one out. Here it is. Uh, here's a new contract for more money. And Roy said, No, it's not enough money and opted and said to stay on the ultimate fighter contract. And I think he, out negotiated himself here thinking like, Hey, I'll, I'll run through the end of this one. I'll finish it on this streak of first round knockouts. And then you'll have to pay Roy Nelson his money. Uh, and then he ended it like the worst way he possibly could. Yeah. And, uh, it did look to me like he underestimated Stipe Miocic a little bit, uh, who I think we should probably talk a little bit about before we run out of time in this round, because clearly it was a performance where Roy showed up on short notice and like clearly had not gotten all the hay into the barn, uh, had not done <laughs> all of the the uh, work to prepare himself to go in there and fight even two rounds. What happens to the excess hay? It just it's just left to rot in the field. Oh, that's that's why it's important that you need to get all of the hay into the barn before the fight. That's a damn shame. Uh, it's like you've never even listened to Matthews talk. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, Roy Nelson obviously shows up not looking his best, I guess you would say. But still, at the same time, you, you don't want to shortchange uh, Miocic completely. Stupid. Like This is clearly the best we've seen of him in the UFC. Uh, he fought maybe not the best Roy Nelson, but he did completely whip the shit out of Roy Nelson, controlled the range well. Uh, it was an, an interesting fight to watch because it seemed like you got to watch Stipe Miocic realize that he was beating the shit out of Roy Nelson as the fight went on he started to, to uh, pretty much land those punches at will and at some point was just like oh holy shit this is totally working and then just put it into high gear and 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 put together a pretty pr- uh impressive performance i thought now he i think he's four and one in the ufc and his only loss of his career i think is to uh uh stefan struve in 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 his last fight before this one yes uh and so it was sort of a coming out party for him. I thought yeah. like he, he definitely like reestablished himself as a guy who should have some hype in the heavyweight division. Yeah. I think he reminded people, Hey, remember when you heard about how there was a athletic heavyweight who had been a golden gloves boxer and a college wrestler. And you thought that sounds like a great combination. Well, here's what he can actually look like when he does put all that stuff together. Uh, I mean, maybe it's easier to look like he got great footwork when Roy Nelson is standing there, uh, wheezing and looking up at the clock. Uh, you know, you, you can make that argument, but it did, I think, remind us a little bit that, hey, maybe there is something to, to, to Stipe. Uh, although the, the storyline of the fight led it to a situation afterwards where way more people are talking about Roy Nelson's, uh, you know, attempt to put his, his balls on the table while also rolling the dice, which again, don't try that. Uh, then they are talking about how good Stipe looked. Yeah, but I mean, I would say at the very least, he earned another fight against another, you know, well-known heavyweight. And if he is able to look good in that one, then then he, you you might have a guy who's really on a roll. I guess we'll have to wait and see uh, uh, for that. Um, well, that is going to wrap up our discussion of Roy Nelson and Stipe Miocic. Stipe, Stipe. in round number two. Uh, we will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the referee that everybody loves to hate is back in the news this week as Steve Mazzagatti let Josh Berkman choke John Fitch stone cold unconscious. And then get up and just pose. And then just fist fist pose over his prone body at World Series of Fighting uh, 3, was it? Sure. World Series of Fighting 3, maybe. Uh, it's just touched off a, a new tidal wave of controversy against the Maz, as we like to call him here on the CME. Uh, Dana White went to the UFC 161 post-fight scrum and just cracked off a 9-minute and 30-second comedy routine. Went off. It was to the point where you could look over. Uh, and see like arena employees who were busy like in this little restaurant where the press conference was held, you know, putting chairs away and stuff. And they stopped what they were doing and watched. I guess my opening question for you for this round then is who's right here? We, uh, we had Dana White go off about how Steve Mazzagatti sucks, which is a thing we've all been saying for a long time. Then Keith Kaiser from the Nevada State Athletic Commission comes out and essentially says it's not that Steve Mazzagatti doesn't suck, but 
he didn't necessarily do anything terrible in in this instance. Uh, what's going on here? Who's right? Who's wrong? I think what's happening here is, for one thing, the Steve Mazzagatti sucks narrative uh, has taken such hold that then I think we're hypersensitive to any instances that could be perceived as him sucking. Yeah, uh, and, and let's be honest. Part of it is that Steve Mazzagatti himself seems to act like such a fart knocker all the time. What? Wow. Like, well, you How just, old are you? <laughs> 12 you've you you know when like when they're facing off and he does the instructions before the bell and then he goes hook him up like that's your problem with the guy <laughs> no, okay. it does make him look like a fart knocker well, be honest he he has sucked enough in the past uh i think that 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 part the whole steve mazzagatti sucks criticism is is warranted uh and it is kind of crazy how whether you're a judge or a referee it seems like you can suck pretty openly and they will keep bringing you back um, just because they don't want to admit, like, hey, we never should have had this guy in here in the first place. Like, they, I think the athletic commissions, particularly in the Nevada State Athletic Commission, just doesn't want to open that door to admitting that maybe they had the wrong guys and the wrong jobs. Um, but I do think that maybe, I mean, for one thing, with this particular instance, he was not where he should have been to be looking at that choke. And Dana White is right when he says that, like, you get stuck in a guillotine choke uh, after you're out and the dude is really cranking on it. That's worse than, you know, a rear naked choke or a triangle choke that's held on too long. He's right about that. I mean, if you if I'm going to be choked out by something that somebody's going to hold on to afterwards, I'd much rather it be a rear naked choke than a guillotine. Remember uh, a couple months ago when I was in here and my voice sounded all weird? Uh, that was because I got yes. caught in a guillotine choke. And I didn't even have to stay in it as long as poor John Fitch did. Like, that was just Dan Stefano catching me in a guillotine choke, me tapping like a little girl him letting me go uh and still like that stuff is on your trachea that 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 hurts and that can damage your trachea uh but at the same time i don't feel like this was even like the worst thing we've ever seen from mazagati no i don't think so either and that's why i'm wondering if we're making a little bit bigger deal out of it than we ought to be just because it is steve mazagati yeah, if it was herb dean i don't think people would be flipping out about it no and and the thing is i, I watched the fight a, a a couple few times this morning again just to sort of reacquaint myself with it after the controversy had had caught fire which hey man it's easy to do the fight's only 41 seconds long so if you haven't yeah. watched it get on the internet and check it out it's 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 worth your time and and as I so often say about the referees in this sport, and especially about this fight, man, this exchange happens so fast. Uh, Berkman stuns John Fitch with, I think, a left hook and then kind of uh, drops him with a right and then pulls him into this guillotine choke. And the truth of the matter is that John Fitch is only in the guillotine choke for 10 seconds, less than 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also gets kind of DDT'd during the exchange. And it's like a half guard, so you don't think that he's going to be able to finish it there. But, I mean, it does make you look bad when the guy who d- applies the choke has time to roll the dude over, stand up, put his fist in the air, uh, and still Mazagati is standing there going, like, let's see where this goes. Yeah, no, and I'm certainly not trying to make the case that it's not a shitty refereeing performance because it absolutely is. And I think the biggest concern is that what you mentioned a few minutes ago is that he's on the wrong side of the action because you can see on the World Series of Fighting broadcast, they have the camera on the opposite side and you can watch John Fitch go limp. You watch yeah. his arm kind of give out on him. Uh, but at the same time, again, it happens so fast. It takes less than 10 seconds for him to just be completely unconscious. And then it's not like it's not an ugly scene where a guy is holding 
holding the choke too long. To Josh Berkman's credit, he lets go of it immediately. Like the yeah. whole exchange takes, like I said, 10 seconds. So to me, yeah, it's a shitty refereeing performance. Steve Mazzagotti's in an improper position. We've seen this kind of stuff from him in the past. We know that he sucks. But at the same time, like I feel like this particular exchange is a thing that could happen to almost any ref. Yeah, that's why I feel like Dana White's rant um, might have been misplaced about this particular performance but his his general thesis steve modigotti is going to get somebody fucking hurt yeah we know we support that that's true that's that's right on the money and that's a a valid like he's he's either going to get somebody hurt or he's going to fuck up somebody's career because i mean if you're a pro fighter if you have 30 pro fights that's that's a pretty good career and yet that's 30 saturday nights is not a whole lot of opportunities uh to really you know make your money make your fame and and build a legacy uh so if you have a referee in there who might fuck up one of them that's a serious issue. And if you have a referee in there who might fuck around and let you get hurt, that's a serious issue. And that is something that the, the athletic commission should be addressing. I mean, if there's some ref out there that everybody agrees is doing a poor job, why do you keep putting him in these positions? I mean, he's in there. I mean, I know it's, it's a world series of fighting, uh, and it's not the UFC, but that's the biggest event that was going on in Vegas. And he's in there working the main event. Like, I mean, how can it be that everybody else in MMA thinks that Steve Mazzagatti is one of, if not the very worst refs, uh, where the Nevada State Athletic Commission looks at him and says, all right, you got the main event tonight, Steve. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And it seems like now it's to the point when the criticism has been so public, uh, the, the Nevada Commission feels like it, it can't do anything about it without being seen as having been bullied into it. Yeah, and maybe that's the real failing here. Uh, I was going to ask you what you make of the pissing match that has sort of developed now uh, between the UFC and the Nevada State Athletic Commission around this issue. And it's one that has been sort of going on for a while because, as Dana White says, well, he's he's busting out his Abbott and Costello who's on first routine in front of the media. <laughs> like, they've been complaining about Steve Mazzagotti for a really long time. And I think Dana White during the scrum even said, now watch, now that I've said this, he's gonna he'll be the referee in the main event of Anderson Silva versus Chris Weidman. Uh, I th- and I think we have which he, subtly might be a, the best way to guarantee that he won't be the ref for that. Yeah, it's probably a smart tactical move on Dana White's part. Uh, and I, you know, he addresses this point too that it sometimes people I think are guilty and maybe we've done it on this show of when talking about the Nevada State Athletic Commission sort of uh, assuming that the Nevada State Athletic Commission is going to do what's good for business right because we've had situations in the past I don't know why anyone would think that since the (laughs) the former executive director of the Nevada State Athletic Commission now works for the UFC why would anyone think that there would be some kind of connection between them well we certainly know who pays better then right (laughs) Uh, we've seen instances in the past where it seemed like they were doing whatever it it took to like make sure that a big event went off right or at least to to uh, to hand marketable stars what seemed like what seemed like pretty lenient penalties yeah. for transgressions, but then you get into a situation like this, and and Dana White at least goes out there and says it's the exact opposite. That now he feels like there's at least some animosity uh, between him and the Nevada State Athletic Commission. To which Keith Kaiser actually responded. I think on on MMA fighting, uh, Kaiser said Dana's a good guy. Very few people care about other people as much as Dana does. But you've heard what he said about about former fighters, former employees, even fighters in his organization, even John Jones. He likes to put people down, whether rightly or wrongly. It's an ego thing. We all have egos. I think it's wrong when people lie and you can't make their own conclusions. Or I think it's... I forget that last line. Uh, (laughs) Good job. Uh, I mean, for one thing, 
I don't know if you do want to get into a, a pissing contest with Dana White because he loves a pissing contest. Yeah, no, that's his he, favorite thing. He loves it almost as much as he loves riding around Maine uh, <laughs> on a motorcycle uh, with no helmet on. Uh, you know, he he will relish those opportunities. Uh, but I mean, it's one thing to be like, hey. We know how Dana White does when he sinks his teeth into somebody where he decides that he's going to bash that person. He goes overboard, and he's done it even with people then who he turns around and says, I've never said a bad thing about this guy. Uh, we, yeah, it's true. We have seen him do that. But about Mazagati, he has a point. I, there's no really getting around that. I, that's the part I don't see. Like You're trying to make this a thing about Dana White, uh, which... I can see how you know there might be an, an issue that you can bring up there if you're Keith Kaiser, but... Let's get back to talking about Mazzagatti, man. I mean, come on. Don't act like you think Mazzagatti's a good ref. I, I just don't see how, how you can make that point right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that anybody uh, could make that point. But are we dealing with a situation here where the UFC is either underestimating its ability to advocate for change or is making a, a conscious decision to not get embroiled in any sort of legal wrangling? It seems like, you know, one of the topics that came up near the end of that uh, scrum video is the the collected reporters all sort of advocating that the UFC should try to file some sort of civil suit against the Nevada State Athletic Commission and try to get Steve Mazzagatti uh, removed from his from his position to which Dana White is kind of like, eh, I don't know, you know, we've we've done all we can. We don't want to do a go to court or anything like that, which uh, it's sort of reminiscent, I think, of how they they handled the TRT issue, where if yeah. the UFC wanted to, they could just say, we're not going to do business with people who are on TRT, and if you think that we're being discriminatory against you, you can go ahead and take us to court. Uh, it just seems like that on a couple of issues, they shy away from uh, situations that, that might take them into, court, into the courtroom, and I don't really understand that. I mean, because I feel like... I feel like he's got a valid point when it comes to Steve Mazzagatti, and if they wanted to uh, take some sort of action against the Nevada State Athletic Commission, they probably could. And whether or not maybe that would just be bad for business, you don't want to take the most powerful athletic commission in the nation uh, to court and make an enemy of them. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's what what is preventing him from. But it seems like a very weird and like uh, passive stance for the UFC to take on some of these issues when they're so uh, uh, you know aggressive on other issues. What I wonder is. What are you telling yourself these days if you're if you're the Maz, if you're Steve Mazzagatti? I mean, are you saying like, okay, I can't quit this refing job, which definitely can't, you know, it's not like a refing job pays really well or anything where you're depending on this for your livelihood. Like, but do you feel like you just can't allow yourself to be run out of the sport by criticism? So instead, you're going to hang on and you're you're going to win them over eventually. Uh, you're going to cuz it's like if you do a good job as a ref, it's not like people are then going to jump on the forums and talking about how awesome you are. Like, it's a tough situation to be in because once people decide that they think you're a shitty ref, it's really hard to change that perception. The best yeah, thing you can do is just go years without noticeably fucking up. Right. Which, well, and if you're the, Steve, the clock would have to start right now for Steve Mazzagatti. <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're Steve Mazzagatti, you could ref a thousand fights and do 999 of them perfectly, and the one that you fuck up, you know, suddenly we're on the internet Here again. We go. It's the Maz. The Maz strikes again. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe it just feels like he doesn't want to uh, be run out of the sport uh, by other people's opinions. But I don't know, man. If I were Steve Mazzagatti, here's where I'd start to think, fuck you people. I don't need this. <laughs> I will spend my Saturday night with my family at the movies, and you can all go to hell. 
Uh, well, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Just saying stuff, the part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to follow up or defend in any way, shape or form, because, uh, you know, we're just two guys sitting in a room just saying stuff. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Jed, I'm just saying, while I was at the, the MTS Center in Winnipeg for UFC 161 on Saturday night, uh, at one point before the main event, I got up, went to the bathroom came out, and being led through the arena floor was a man in a tank top with blood all over his forearms and very recently acquired bruises all over his face, clearly quite drunk, uh, in handcuffs with two police officers uh, leading him through a crowd of people uh, to which he shouted, Oh yeah, great, let's walk through a crowd of people. And then when he saw those people staring at him, which, of course, why wouldn't you stare at that dude? He began attempting to lunge at them, despite the fact that, again, he'd obviously been beaten up, was in handcuffs, and two cops were holding on to him at the time. I'm just saying that based on this gentleman's actions, I assume he is a CME listener, uh, and I assume he is listening now, to which I would like to say to him, hey, buddy, we all have rough nights sometimes. Just keep your head up. I'm just saying. Just saying. Man, I swear to God, the more you talk about it, the more it sounds like Winnipeg's in Montana. Are you sure that it's not in Montana? <laughs> I mean, based on uh, how many planes I had to take to get there, I'm going to say not in Montana. Ben, this week I feel compelled in my Just Saying stuff to say a few words about Bellator's reality show, Fight Master. Nice. Uh, which debuts, I believe, on Wednesday night of this week. Uh, you know, we have given that company and that show a hard time occasionally on this show. And so I feel it's only fair to say that I watched the pre-screener of the debut episode that Spike sent out this week, and it's actually better than I expected it to be. I feel like the show makes some interesting choices to focus on uh, the coaches as well as the fighters, and in that way kind of avoids being a, a just a rehash of The Ultimate Fighter, and I thought that that was kind of interesting. It appears to me that there's probably some uh, reality television show editing going on to make things appear... A little bit more exciting than, don't say. than they actually are. Uh, but overall, I thought, you know, depending on what happens once we get to the obligatory, all these fighters live in the same house together section of the show. Better than I expected. Not going to say it's going to be great, but maybe it's worth a, a DVR slot for a couple weeks. People could check it out, see what they think. Whoa, so you would actually, uh, n you know, knock House Hunters off your, your DVR uh, list to make space for it? House Hunters Domestic, yes. House Hunters International, no way. That's just way too exciting. Okay. Well, at least now we know your priorities are. You, hating America is apparently at the top of the list. So I'm not saying it's going to be great. I'm just saying, hey, man, Fight Master. Check it out. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week with uh, more CME action, including, we believe, uh, to discuss the upcoming... CME music contest. Yeah. And so, we actually do have some legitimately good prizes. We do have some, some good prizes. Uh, but as for this week, as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Did you know that on House Hunters International, it's, it's staged. The whole thing is fixed. You, you can't go on the show without already being in a contract with your house. I did not know.